it's, it's tough to plug everything in in an hour. Uh, usually we get like two and a half, and, uh, but they've let us come in. There's just a lot of restrictions in place. So thank you for putting up with all of the beeps and glitches and pops. Uh, hello to everyone who's online. I hope you're hearing me well. If you are not, send something in the comments section and we will make sure uh, you can listen as well and make sure that I'm coming in loud and clear for the people at home as well, okay? And uh, if you want me closer to the camera, feel free to come up and move it a little closer if you need that, all right? Uh, I'm going to get right into the message today and uh, want to talk to you uh, about the end of our Advent series, which we're ending it today. Technically, we're a week early. Uh, but we're ending it today. Now, Advent is, uh, is done in a lot of churches around the world. And the idea is that you celebrate the Advent of Jesus. And that is the coming of Jesus, the presence of Jesus both 2,000 years ago and what will happen in the future at his second coming. That's what Advent is. And the idea is you try and slow life down and uh, all the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. And you try and, and put yourself in the shoes of those who experienced Jesus 2,000 years ago. What would it have been like for them? And also, what is it going to be like when he returns? That's what Advent is. So we've done four parts already. There's always four parts to Advent. You cover hope, joy, love, and peace. And on the fifth week, which we're doing today, you cover Jesus. So I want to do that, but in a special way today, I want to talk to you about something that you probably never heard of and something that you never read. I don't care how many years you've been in church, you have probably never heard a sermon uh, about what I call the Jehoiakim Clause. I don't know uh, how well you think you know the Christmas story, but I would wager money that you have never read this verse. You have never thought about the implications of this verse. It's actually out of the Christmas story, technically, which you'll find in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2 in your Bible's New Testament, and Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 in your Bible's New Testament. You guys at home were watching online. I bet you never read this verse either. But this is out of the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, okay? We're okay? You're hearing? We're good, on, we're good on the stream? You can still hear me out there? All right, good. This is out of the genealogy of Matthew. This is from Matthew chapter 1 and uh, verse 11. Now, I'm a bit of an old guy here, so I'm going to put this in front of me somewhere in the light so I can see, okay? Uh, this is just one little verse from the genealogy of Matthew relative to the Christmas story. And Josiah... The father of Jeconiah, who's also called Jehoiakim in some translations, and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. Note that name, Jehoiakim or Jeconiah. I'm calling this the Je Je Jehoiakim clause. Do you believe in Christmas. You say, what are you talking about? I can't even pronounce this dude's name. I don't read those genealogies. They're so boring. Well, I, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, you're, you're getting my brain all scrambled up on, you know, this was supposed to be this nice Christmas service, you know, December the 20th. Well, I, I, what my goal is, is for you to appreciate why the virgin birth is so important for you today. When I say virgin birth, I do not mean immaculate conception. 
That is a misconception that people have. They hear this term immaculate conception and they think it's referring to the virgin birth. It most certainly is not. When people say immaculate conception, that's a Roman Catholic thing. And it means that Mary was conceived without sin, which you will not find anywhere in the Bible's New Testament. That's not what the virgin birth is. What the virgin birth is, is that Mary who was pledged to be married to Joseph, as per Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. He, she was pledged to be married to Joseph, as per the customs of the day. There would be a legal betrothal. And then the couple, at some point in the future, usually it was about a year later, they would actually have a ceremony and then they would begin living together, all right? She had not reached that place. The couple had not reached that place yet, but they were legally betrothed. That woman, that young woman, was found to be pregnant with Jesus miraculously so not biologically not with the involvement of Joseph or anybody else but with the power of God she was found to be pregnant with none other than the Lord Jesus this is what we mean when we talk about the virgin birth or the virgin conception I know what some of you are thinking is, is Mary's DNA in Jesus we have no idea is Mary's Y chromosome in Jesus? We have no idea. All we know is that Mary was found to be pregnant supernaturally, impossibly, by the power of God. That's what we mean by the virgin birth. And I want to try and, um, and persuade you to understand why the virgin birth is so important using, as an example, the Jehoiakim Clause. Not Santa Claus the Jehoiakim Clause. You say, what's a Jehoiakim Clause anyway, and what is a Jehoiakim? Okay, um, to, do, to understand this, you've got to go to your, your Bible's Old Testament. You don't need to do that uh, right now, but I will do it for my own benefit here. And you go to the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is going to have words about this king, Jehoiakim. Who and what is a Jehoiakim? Well, ancient history of, uh, of Israel, you had several things that happened, and one of them, we meet this King Jehoiakim in the process. First, you have a civil war that takes place in about 922 BC, and the nation is split against itself, really, and you have tribes to the north, which was called Israel, and you have tribes to the south, which was called Judah. And you have several kings that are listed for you in the books of Kings and Chronicles. All these kings, they come and they go, they come and they go, they come and they go. Most of them are not too good. Most of them are ungodly kings. There's a few rare exceptions, especially in the southern land, which is where we meet Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, we will meet just two kings before the Babylonians will come in, destroy the, the temple in Jerusalem, and take the people captive to Babylon. Sixth century BC, hundreds of years before Jesus was born that night in Bethlehem. You say, okay, now Jehoiakim was an ungodly king. Again, the second to last king before the exile took place. And what's going on in Jeremiah chapter 22, which I'll call the Jehoiakim clause, is that God is pronouncing judgment 
on this ungodly king, really on several of them at one time, but he's going to really lower the boom on this guy, Jehoiakim. So picking it up in verse 24 of Jeremiah chapter 22, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. And he says this, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even you, Jehoiakim, and in some translations, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, so you can't mix your kim up with your kin, okay? <laughs> King of Judah, if you were a signet ring on my right hand, God says, I would still pull you off. Strong imagery there. I will hand you over to those who seek your life. Those who you fear to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and your mother who gave you birth, wow, into another country where neither of you was born and there you will both die. Very, very strong pronunciation of judgment against this ungodly king by God himself through the prophet Jeremiah. You will never come back to the land. You long to return to. And then he continues, is this man Jehoiakim a despised broken pot? An object that no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out? Cast into a land they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord said, says, record this man as if childless. A man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. It's the Jeconiah, Jehoiakim clause. What's the clause? Well, God has apparently said very clearly that no descendant of this man will sit on the throne. And yet hundreds of years later, we see in the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1 that this man is listed as an ancestor of Jesus and that Jesus comes from his line. And so this clause is used in particular by Jewish people to say that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah and Jesus was therefore not born of a virgin it's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of propaganda that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is trying to foist upon you. But it is false information. See Jeremiah 22. He condemned this man who's a great, 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 great grandfather supposedly of your Jesus. Jesus is not the Son of God, therefore. He is not the Messiah, therefore. He is not worthy of worship, therefore. And he was not born of a virgin. It's the Jehoiakim Clause. This clause is one of many objections that religious folks, in particular Jews and Muslims, raise against the idea of Jesus being born of a virgin. Are you with me so far? You're with me on the camera? Yeah, I can see, I can hear your voices. Yeah, we're with you, all two of you. Okay, no, I'm sure you're with me. Okay, so this is what's going on. And uh, I want you to understand and to grasp through the view of others who do not believe in Christmas, 
who do not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, who do not believe that he is the Messiah or the Son of God, I want you to see through their eyes why what you believe is so important. Because we have lost sight of it. And for us, the virgin birth is a little tack on a wall that we say is essential to Christianity, but we don't really live like it is. So in Judaism, I put this on your screen, Jews reject totally the virgin birth, their clause that they bring up is one of the little tricks that they try and do with scripture. And they reject the implications of the virgin birth because they know very well what the virgin birth implies about Jesus and what it implies about us. And we'll get into that in just a couple of moments. So they flat out reject it, flat out decline it. In fact, the verse that we love to read at Christmas time, also in the Christmas story from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 22, Matthew says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. I hear you on the camera. God with us. And we preach to use this text all the time at Christmas time in churches. Everybody goes, wow, that's so cool that Isaiah predicted this. That's so cool. You know what Jewish people say about that verse? They say it's nonsense. You know what they say? Humbug. <laughs> bah humbug. What Matthew's doing there is trying to jerk this verse out of context, trying to make it seem like he's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about Jesus at all. Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, is not talking about Jesus or any virgin birth or any virgin at all. He's talking about a young woman. He's talking about this uh, uh, something that will be fulfilled in the chapter after. It's got nothing to do with Christmas. This is religious propaganda that Matthew is trying to foist upon your brain you're deluded, 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 your verse is humbug. That's what they'll say. Now, this is easily refutable stuff. I'm not even going to get into how to correct that problem because there's a bigger problem afoot with this challenge about Jesus not being born of a virgin and therefore not being the Son of God and therefore not being the Messiah because the virgin birth has all kinds of implications that are world-changing and life-changing for you and for me. You talk about Muslims as another example. Muslims are interesting because they'll accept the virgin birth. You'll even see the virgin birth in the Quran. But they totally reject the implications. They give lip service to the virgin birth. They say, yeah, uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. But they have no uh, uh, recognition or appreciation for the consequences and the implications of that belief, which is in their own book. They also believe, believe it or not, that Jesus will come back one day. And that he will defeat a type of antichrist figure in their, in their theology, in Islamic theology. But they most certainly reject the implications of all of this. What are the implications of Jesus being born of a virgin anyway? What does that really mean? 
Jews will also reject the idea that Jesus is the Messiah and claim to be the Messiah. They say he claimed it, but they say that he's wrong. He is an imposter. His claims were inaccurate. Why? Because he did not bring universal peace on the world. Because the temple was destroyed shortly after he was executed. Because he did not bring the Jews back to Israel. He is therefore an imposter. He is not the Messiah who you Christians claim him to be. Why? The virgin birth has a host of implications. One of them has to do with Jesus being the Messiah. Now you may hear Jewish people say Merry Christmas, especially when they're selling you something. They might say Merry Christmas, right? That got a laugh. I could hear you laugh on the camera too, right? You may hear Muslim people say Merry Christmas, but they most certainly do not celebrate the actual virgin birth of Jesus and acknowledge the consequences of this and the implications of this. Why? Because the implications are that Jesus was both human and deity at the same time. That he was both human and God at the same time. If that is so, then Jesus should be worshipped. Just like the wise men came and bowed before him in Matthew and presented them with gifts, him with gifts, and worshipped him. In no way, shape, or form can a Jewish person or a Muslim claim that Jesus Christ is both human and God at the same time. Because that would mean that he has to be worshipped. The worst blasphemy in Islam is to say that God has a son. It is the highest blasphemy. Back in the New Testament, read the New Testament, when Jesus made statements about being the son of God, what happened? They wanted to execute him for that. Blasphemy, they said. You cannot claim to be the Son of God. Blasphemy. So when you believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, the implication is he is both God and man at the same time. And therefore, he's got to be worshipped. And this is why you see him worshipped in the pages of the New Testament, because there were people who believed that. But beyond this, you and I cannot therefore be saved unless Jesus Christ is born of a virgin, because his virgin birth implies that he's both God and man. If he's both God and man, then when he performed miracles, he performed those miracles because of who he was. Not because he was specially infused with some magical power source, but because of who he was, he performed those miracles, including controlling nature, including raising dead people, including dominance over spiritual forces, visible, invisible, natural, supernatural. He was able to have control over all of these things, not because he was infused by some magic, but because of who he was, both God and man at the same time. If that's true, then when he went to the cross... He did so 
as an atonement, not just for one person, two people, three people, but for all humanity. If he is not both God and man, then his death on the cross is no different than the, de the death of anyone else. But if he is both God and man, then that atonement applies to you and to me today. Then you and I today can be forgiven of our sin and be confident of that fact because it all started in that manger when Jesus was born of a virgin. If Jesus is not God, you cannot be saved. His miracles were at best some magic tricks or maybe he was infused with some sort of special power. His resurrection from the dead did not happen, with both, which both Jews and Muslims deny outright. His second coming, although Muslims give lip service to it, doesn't really do much. And ultimately, beyond the grave, you and I have no hope. And ultimately, in the present life, our, uh, we cannot be forgiven of our sin. And it all starts with the virgin birth, you see. You remove that from the foundation of the story and the whole thing starts to crumble like a house of cards. My question to you is, do you believe in Christmas? When you say Merry Christmas, you may be thinking of, you know, it's festive and there's lights and trees. How many of you, you realize there's no more Christmas lights in the store? Did you realize this? Like we bought Christmas lights. We bought extra Christmas lights this year, just like everybody else did. You know, it was like a boxing day at Canadian Tire with all these people running to pick up l lights as if, as if they, they were, you know, toilet paper or something, right? So people all grabbing the lights. So lights are all gone. We had a strand of lights that broke. I said, well, I'll just go to Canadian Tire and go pick up some more lights. Eh, nowhere to be found. You know that natural Christmas trees are like very, very hard to find now? You know, it's a week before Christmas. You can't find any trees anywhere because people need hope and people need encouragement. So they're going overboard on the lights and the trees and all these things. Nothing wrong with that. But when you say Merry Christmas... Are you acknowledging the implications of what that really means when you look into the pages of the Bible? Do you really understand that that means that you're saying, at least if you go by what this book says, and not simply by what culture says, you're saying Jesus was both God and man. That little baby 2,000 years ago demands my life and demands my worship. So it's beyond the festivities, it's beyond the giving, it's beyond the uh, uh, friends and family. All those things are great. It's beyond the food, it's beyond the tree, it's beyond all of those things. What we're really saying, if we investigate the true Christmas story, is that that little baby demands my life. And he wants me to worship him. Even today, even 2,000 years later. So that's the question that we have to wrestle with when we think about something like the Jehoiakim Clause. Do you, do I believe 
in Christmas. Regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of what's going on in the province and all of these things in this bizarre, uh, strange year of 2020, that changes nothing about Christmas if Christmas is about that baby who is both God and man at the same time.